0: Welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood, everyone. This is your host, Javitsa Djurjevic, and today I've got Bob Wheatley with me. Bob, uh, give the folks listening a 10,000-foot view of who you are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, Joe, thanks for having me on. I know we've been talking about doing this for quite some time, so thanks uh, thanks for having me on the show. Definitely appreciate it. And yeah, just a bit about me. I grew up in Southern California, born and raised out there. I've been living here in Nashville for a little over two years now Uh, met Joe actually worked together so that's how Joe and I met but grew up uh, like I said grew up in in Southern California grew up in a very athletic household Uh, both my parents met at USC so that was always my dream school grew up during the Pete Carroll Matt Leinert, Reggie Bush heyday Um, I was in in middle school when all that was going down and so grew up uh, a diehard Trojan fan and ended up going to USC on a baseball scholarship. So I was able to go to my, my dream school there. Really loved my time um, playing ball and, you know, just going to school right there in Los Angeles and ended up getting drafted by the Toronto Blue Jays, played for them for a couple of years, signed with the St. Louis Cardinals uh, to a minor league deal, played with them for a bit and then ended up uh, my fourth season. Uh, playing pro ball in independent professional baseball in normal Illinois of all places <laughs> normal
0: then, I've heard that place yeah,
1: there, there's nothing normal about normal I was playing for the normal corn belters oh, of wow. the frontier league yeah I was making 600 bucks a month pre-tax pre clubhouse dues everything um we, I think we we worked it out that the the 16 year old flipping flipping burgers was making more than the players on the field but Either way, uh, you know, spent some time in pro ball, which was great. Um, difficult, but just an amazing time. Was able to meet people from all over the country and even different countries, which was just so, so cool. And after I played, spent a couple months, about six months home in California, and I had traveled quite a bit because of baseball. I'm, through, through playing, I've lived in uh, Florida, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, Illinois and Canada. I spent a summer in Vancouver, British Columbia. So travel quite a bit. It wasn't necessarily that I had a travel travel bug that I needed to cater to. Uh, There's just something about the culture out in California that I wasn't really vibing with anymore and you know I had spent two months a year in California. I spent 10 months a year on the road while yeah. I was a player. Yeah, every off season I went and lived uh just outside of New Orleans. It's a really good pitching coach down there. And so I, I spent three or four months of my off season there. And uh, you know, six to eight months, whatever ended up being uh in season. So when I was in California, I always loved it because I wasn't playing ball. You know, it was let's call it September fifteenth through November first. So that was just my beach time and my you know I wasn't hitting the gym I wasn't throwing anymore I was just licking my wounds essentially from the season but once I retired I looked around and I just thought man I I don't think this is the place where I want to raise my kids oddly enough because you know I'm single I don't have any kids but it just looked it looked different from the place that I grew up in and Joe I'm not sure the uh you know, the listener base, what you have on the show, if it's, you know, centrally located to Nashville or if it's nationwide, what it looks like. There's quite a few California uh, folks. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so in my experience, don't want to speak for everybody out there because again, my whole family's in California. Like I'm not going to knock it, you know, go back there every holiday season. It's still all good. But um, I was just looking for a change and I felt like God was calling me out to Nashville, this place that I had never been before, oddly enough. And so, of course, if you play baseball long enough, you're going to be around Vanderbilt baseball players and played with a handful. And they'd always talk about Nashville. And um, when you grow up in Southern California, you sort of think that you were just born in the promised land. Why would I I ever leave? You know, it's sunny and 75 every day. Every woman is beautiful, right? Like, why, why why would I leave? And yet I was looking around and again not going to speak for everybody but culturally i just wasn't really vibing with what i saw saw a lot of um, a lot of worldliness maybe just seemed very superficial uh, in, a, in a in a word it just seemed very kardashian just very yeah. fake image driven and so again i felt like god was calling me out to nashville the city that i knew three people in and through some unexpected circumstances, a long time, long lost friend of mine was living in Nashville looking for a roommate. Uh, we're talking about Willie, Willie yeah. Shaw. And so I played baseball and football with him since the age of 14. I went to school in Los Angeles. He went to school in Virginia. So he and I had had lost touch because there's a lot of time and a lot of miles between the two of us. And, uh, you know, I call him up. Sure enough, he's working at the company 2,000 miles away that I'm applying to. It's nuts. He's also coming up for his lease, so he's looking for a roommate. So I really just felt like I had the red carpet rolled out for me when I came out here to Nashville. And I'm probably uh, probably getting a little long-winded, but that, Joe, is what's got me to Nashville. And since, since I've been here, uh, I, I absolutely feel like it was the right move. Love it out here. And there's many, many reasons why. But yeah, that's, uh, that, that's my story up till about two years ago in, uh, when, when you and I met. That is awesome. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. First question I have for you, going
0: from Pete Carroll to Lane Kiffin, how much did that hurt? Oh,
1: man. You know, you know it's <laughs> tough because, and, and you, you can't even stop Lane Kiffin, right? You got Lane, then Sark, even the current campaign. It's like, we're just trying so hard to hold on to the Pete Carroll magic, yeah, and so you're trying to stay within that tree. Um, I, I was there when when Lane was there as well as Sark, and dude, it's just, it, it'd be like at Alabama, right? Once once uh, Savin leaves, hiring his, um, his his minions, and then expecting that they're going to be Nick. Like there's just sometimes there are people that are just game changers. Yeah. And Pete Carroll was one of those guys. Oddly enough, when he got hired, he was like the fourth pick. Like, every, everyone's like, who? I mean, obviously, Pete had had an NFL job. But there's a reason why he was available. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he got fired. And so, I mean, you asked about Lane. Um, you know, he uh, – how oh, do I go? Where do I go with that? Um, I'll, I'll say this. Pete Carroll, and again, I was I was in middle school when all that was going down. There was something magical about USC football at that time, yeah. And we're still trying to recapture it. Obviously, the the sanctions and whatnot with Reggie Bush and even OJ Mayo in, on the basketball side of things set things back. I don't think I don't think we're bowl eligible a single year when I was at school. So it's like right in the heart of that, where you know we'd win the Pac-12 South or whatever it looked like, and then no bowl game. Right, we beat yeah. UCLA fifty-five nothing. I think it was Matt Barkley's senior year, junior year, something like that. No bowl game. So, um isn't isn't laying at Ole Miss now? So he's hopped around a bit, but he's he's laying on his feet. He's a, he's a brilliant offensive mind. um Pete was just such a leader of men, and just yeah. created such an amazing culture. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and well, and it's interesting because so, you know, you didn't play you didn't play football, but you you probably got some of that almost residual magic and like the culture of the school playing baseball. So let's talk a little bit about that. So you're playing baseball, you're, you're a pitcher, right? Correct. Okay. So, you know, you go through your four years at college, then you get drafted. Talk to me about the change in that, both from a physical, professional, and just emotional standpoint, the changes that happened when you went from that you know, you think high school to college is a big jump, man. College to the pros is an even bigger jump because you go from being, you know, one of the guys to being on a team where every guy was the man
1: type of type of situation. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, I, I want to even go back to high school because I feel like that puts it into context. High school was the last time where I felt like every time I stepped on the field, I was just better than everybody. That was okay. the last time, yeah. you know, so I, that senior high school, I'm 17, 18. Then when I went to college, I mean, by the time I left there, my junior, my senior year, I was a serviceable player. Okay. Uh, I ended up being a starter my junior and senior year, but I was never all conference. Like I was, I was far from a world beater. You know, I'm tall, I'm left-handed. So those are two things that bode well as far as pitching. But as far as, you know, I, I didn't have this laser rocket arm. I wasn't throwing a hundred, you know, I was mid, mid high eighties in college. And I, you know, like I said, I wasn't a world beater. I think my size helped me. I definitely threw with the correct hand, my left hand to, you know, help as far as pitching. But even in college, I always felt like, man, I, I can't just out-talent people here. Mm. So my preparation had to be dialed in, um, worked really hard um, in between starts as far as scouting, self-scouting. Uh, nutrition, sleep, all that stuff. I just, you know, for I don't, I don't think it's a, a bad thing. It's just self awareness. I knew I could not out talent anybody, even in college. Hmm. And so then it was so funny. I, I had a, I had a good junior year statistically, but I was playing hurt. The last half of the year, I was about seventy five percent and. I felt like I could barely break a pane of glass when I was throwing. Like I was just like flipping it in there, getting a lot of ground balls, not striking anybody out, but I had a two, eight ERA. So I, I pitched really well in my senior year. I'm healthy. And, uh, with baseball, you want to get drafted either out of high school or as a junior in college because, because you want leverage, um, as a high schooler, you could always say, well, you know, if you don't pay me, I could always go to USC. I could always go to college. I got that scholarship waiting for me. Then of course, you know, they, they compensate you to help your decision become easier. Same thing in college, you're draft eligible as a junior or if you're a very, very old sophomore. So if you get drafted as a junior in the fifth round, that might, you might make 400 grand. Mm. If you get drafted in the, in the fifth round as a senior, they might pay you 5,000 if you're lucky. Because what what are you, you gonna do? It's like, well, you can go work at Kinkos or you can show up uh, you know, to to our facility in Florida. So my senior year, of course I wanted to get drafted, didn't perform as well statistically, because frankly, I was just trying trying to throw as hard as I can because oh. that's what that's what uh that's where the game is now, honestly. If you can't throw hard, somebody else can. So uh ended up getting drafted. I was a twenty six round pick. Of the Toronto Blue Jays, I was 774th overall. I remember uh, I had such an underwhelming senior year that I didn't think I was going to get drafted. I remember there's three days of the draft in in baseball, and it was the third day. I was actually at home. I don't even think I was working out to stay in shape for baseball. I think I was working out to blow off some steam. So I was I was on the ground doing push-ups, and my phone started ringing. And I look at it and it says, Bud Smith, Toronto Blue Jays. I'm like, who in the world is Bud Smith? And so, you know, I pick up and and Bud is like, hey, Bob, um, you know, we'd like to pick you here with our next pick. Would you sign for $1,000? I'm like, well, duh, duh, I will sign for $1,000. <laughs> <laughs> where, do, where do I sign? And then, you know, we hang up and 20 minutes later, their, their pick rolls around and they end up picking me. I think I was so happy because – uh you know you'll get these scouting questionnaires, yeah, and I must have just took bud's uh business card and punched his contact info in you know eight months prior i to this day, he's the man that drafted me i mean he he could walk he could walk into my place right now, I would not know him, haven't mm. that, so um yeah, got drafted and then then we got started, but yeah, man, once we got to pro ball like in college I had this this feeling that uh. I wasn't as good as everyone, so I had to, you know, especially when you're younger, right? Like, you yeah. go from big man on campus as a senior, then you show up as a freshman, and then everybody's bigger, faster, stronger than you. Yeah. It was the same experience in pro ball, except they weren't seniors that were bigger, faster, stronger. They're it's problem, really humbling man. when you're when – you're, well, well, it's both sides of the, the coin. So, you're, you're a 22-year-old rookie as a senior sign – yeah, they're going to be some twenty-five-year-olds that they might even be like flirting with the big leagues, and of course they're bigger, faster, stronger. But it's really humbling when you have some seventeen-year-old from Venezuela throwing ninety-eight, and it's like, what in the world? Even the younger people are better than me. <laughs> mm. So uh, it was a really, really humbling experience. And honestly, man, when, when you're drafting the twenty-sixth round, like you, you are just a body. Like there might be one player on your team in the lower levels of the minors that 18 year old high school shortstop or center fielder. And of course you need every other position on the field to play a baseball game. But as far as the higher ups that are in Toronto or St. Louis, they only have their eyes on that player, which is totally fine. I mean, I, I get it. That's the business. Um, but they know two, three, four years out, yeah, this guy is going to be our big league shortstop in 2024. What? So. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it was amazing to see the business side of it. And again, I, I totally get it. It would have been a miracle if I made it to the big leagues. And so I just told myself that I was going to keep playing as long as I thought I had a chance to do it. Because I'm tall, I'm left-handed, you know, sometimes you, you catch lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And so I got released by the Blue Jays, kept playing, got released by the Cardinals, kept playing. And then uh, ultimately, third time's a charm, I, I hung it up uh, you know, after playing, playing indie ball. We're playing but at
0: normal, normal Illinois. That's right. For the normal Corn Belters. Yes, sir. Okay. So baseball is obviously, I mean, you probably were playing from
1: five or six years old. If,
0: if I'm not mistaken, your dad played baseball
1: as well, right? My dad was a basketball player. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. Basketball. He, he played at USC. Okay. Back when six, four white dudes could be a shooting guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I think he dunked once. He told me about it. <laughs> <laughs> he told
0: you about it. <laughs> okay, sorry. For some reason I thought your dad was a baseball player. So but you probably played baseball from what
1: five, six years old-ish? Yeah. I mean, T balls, you know, four, yeah. five. Yeah.
0: So you go from t-ball to kid pitch, et cetera. And then you're, you know, you make it all the way playing professionally and now you got to hang it up. I mean, at what moment, because the, the cognitive dissonance there has just got to be through the roof, not just for you, but for anybody where, where you keep chasing that dream. At what point do you look at that and say, OK, it's time to stop?
1: Yeah. Uh, again, I told myself that I was going to keep playing as long as I thought I had a chance, because I knew if I did that once I came to a place where it's like, you know, it, it's just time then I wouldn't have any regrets. And I've always been a hard worker, so I wasn't really worried about not putting it all out there. But if I left too soon, I didn't want to be the guy 10 years from now where it's like, hey, you know, I think, I don't think I saw my best performance. I don't think I saw the the best baseball that is in me. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, shoot. I remember when I got released by the, by the Blue Jays and I should, I should just say the jargon. I mean, when you say released, that's just, I got fired, right? The Blue Jays called me and they said, Hey, you know, we don't have a spot for you next year. Um, and they were very gracious about it. They're like, Hey, you you know, you're a, you're a professional. We love having you around, but we're going younger and we just don't have a position for you. We're not going to invite you to spring training. I was right around, um, right around Halloween of 15 and you know I got a call the farm director's name was Doug Davis when you see Doug Davis's you know phone uh when you see your phone ring with Doug Davis calling in October uh, he's not giving you a raise so I'm like oh man okay I know what's going on here so pick up the phone he releases me and then I just went I went straight to the gym because that's what I was going to do anyway that was my routine and so in that moment I was like you know I'm just I'm not done um I haven't performed well. And it's not, I mean, they're obviously better. They're going to be better at every level. It gets harder and harder. But I don't think I have played my best baseball. And Mm -hmm. so continued working hard. And actually had my best year. Uh, I signed with the Cardinals the next year. And had far and away my best season. Far and away. I had a, I think I had like a one and a half ERA. I gave up five runs the entire season. I was just, they probably had me at a level that I shouldn't have been playing at. I just repeated the level that I was at with, uh, with Toronto. Mm. And so now at that point I was better <laughs> than, yeah. than the players that I was at. And so I just, you know, I dealt for them and then, uh, I show up to spring training the following year after re-signing with them. And, you know, I, when I'm looking back, this isn't a regret, but it's just something that I, I didn't really have an awareness of. They call me in the off season cause I was a free agent again. And then they signed me to a one-year deal. And I didn't do any homework at all. I was just like, well, of course I'm going to resign with you, St. Louis. You guys are known for developing talent, especially pitchers. And I love you, you love me. Like let's let's do this. And so I go to spring training. I throw one inning with them. Evidently they were going to keep me if I threw a hundred, but I didn't pass that test. And they released me after throwing one inning
0: in wow. spring training.
1: And yeah, I, I knew I was in trouble when my roommate in the hotel got released after a bullpen. Like he didn't, he didn't even throw an inning. They didn't like his bullpen and they said hit the road. So they released me, went back to California, kept throwing, signed with normal for a little bit. And then I had this moment, I was actually starting, uh, I was starting games in normal, which was cool because for my first three seasons professionally, I was a bullpen guy. Um typically, you have your your best players start because it's much harder to get somebody out three times a night than just once. You know, you could you could come in and throw a hundred or have a great curveball and strike somebody out once. But when you start facing the same guys three times over, when you're you know fatigued, you just you, you have to be better. So I was a bullpen guy because I wasn't one of those guys, but I was starting in uh, in normal, which which was what I was used to. And so I had this moment, and Joe, you talk about when do you come to that place where you can make that decision? And I I had that moment. I remember, uh, I think it was in Schaumburg, Illinois. I got roughed up in my start. I think I went three and three and two thirds, got four or five. And so I'm sitting in the dugout watching the guy that came in for me. And dude, this guy is amazing. Like he he is so good. He's he's like six six two thirty. He's right-handed. He's throwing 94 miles an hour. Great slider. Great changeup. Like, this guy is just nasty. And I'm watching him, and I just had this epiphany where it, it just hit me. I was like, this guy is so much better than me. Like, it is not even close. Not even close. He's better than I have ever been. He is better than I will ever be. And yet, he is still playing for the normal corn belters (laughs) like this. And he had spent time in the Texas Rangers organization. Like, so he, you know, he had played, I think double A or triple A, but I'm watching this dude and he's just amazing. And that, that was my moment. I was like, this guy is a thousand miles from the big leagues, like not even close. He will not play in the show. And he's way better than me. I need to go home. It's, it's over and it wasn't it wasn't a bad moment it was like huh okay R- remember that moment that you said you would always hang it up like once you realize you don't have a chance yeah hi i'm here <laughs> and so it it was crazy like we went uh, you know finished the game finished the series uh, hit the road to go back to back to normal and then i remember it was a tuesday my parents were supposed to fly in and actually watch me start my next start the following friday and I thought, all right, well, that's kind of cool. Like, I know I'm going to hang it up. My parents will see my last start. You know, it'd be, be like a little Mariano Rivera type deal where you just know, all right, this is, this is the last dance. Now, instead of 60,000 people, there was 60 people, but I was like, all right, well this, this will be cool. You know, they'll, they'll get to watch my last game. Then Tuesday, we're about to start our next road trip and the skipper calls me into the office and honestly, like when you've been released twice before, you just, you know, you just catch the aura. And so I'm walking into this man's office and I'm like, I'm about to get released right now. And on my team in Anyball, ball, the, the turnover is just crazy. Like, yeah. I mean, they'll give you like a month or two, but then after that it is a revolving door. Like, ev- like every week people are just flying in and out of there. And so he releases me. And dude, it just felt so meant to be, because again, I was, I was going to retire in four days. I was going to start on Friday and then walk into his office on Saturday, not knowing what I was going to say, because I'm I'm not a quitter. I wouldn't be quitting, but it was time. And so I was just, I didn't know how to deal with that conversation because this is a guy who took a chance on me. He drafted me. He's been paying me, even though not very much, but <laughs> You know, so I didn't know how to have that conversation. And then for it to happen for me just felt so meant to be. I was on a plane from Chicago to L.A. in three hours and I didn't look back. And there has not been a day that I have had regret or a bitter taste in my mouth or anything. It was really just such an amazing transition from the world of being an athlete for two decades to all of a sudden like hanging up the cleats. It was just such a perfect transition because I had that closure and that's, that was really the only thing I was looking for from the beginning. So I could not have asked for a, for a better transition. Yeah. How old were you? I would have been, I would have been 25 when that happened.
0: Okay. 25. So very much so a grown man, you weren't like 21, 22 where you're maybe still somewhat of a, you know, kid. But you're a grown man at 25. This happens. I'm curious. So, amongst our friend circle, you're known as probably the most disciplined human being that's ever walked the face of Earth. Um, <laughs> you you you'd probably disagree with that term. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, self criticism <laughs> you can come up with. But just Bob is known as a very disciplined person. Um, do you think that discipline came from baseball and went into other parts of your life, or was it did it form in other parts of your life and came into baseball and then baseball helped mold it as well. Does that make sense? Did it come inside out or outside in?
1: Yeah. It's the latter. Um, it did not come from baseball at all. Okay. I'd say it came from two things came from one person and one thing came from my dad. Okay. He's very disciplined himself. And you know, I'm just my father's son. He, he, he taught me to work hard, taught me the importance of it. And, uh, just watching him, you know, watching his work ethic, watching the way he went about his business. Just, I wanted to be like him. So that was one, one person. And then the thing is actually football. Again, I played football in high school and I pr- I probably like football better, honestly. Um, I just buy much more with football culturally. Football is much more militaristic. It's much of a, more of a team deal where, of course, as an offensive lineman, cause I was a quarterback. If you didn't block for me, then I got hurt. Likewise, as a quarterback, if I didn't know my reads or if I was late getting a ball across the middle, you might get smoked by a safety as a wide receiver. So mm. if you don't do your job, someone literally gets hurt. And so with football, the culture is just so different from baseball, so different. And you can, you can see, um, you just you know the difference between a, a football guy and a baseball guy. And so in high school I was able to dip into both of those cultures. And in high school you have a lot of cross you know cross training anyway, guys yeah. playing two, three sports. So it wasn't weird. But no man, I learned I learned discipline from football. You know, just with the two a days and up downs and all that stuff and having to know the playbook and also being the quarterback. So you're sort of the field general. So, no, I didn't learn it from baseball, but it definitely helped me with baseball. Uh, baseball, it's it's so funny. It's You go from football where you look on the sidelines and you have eight coaches giving hand signals and, you know, poster boards and headsets and all that stuff. With baseball, and I, I don't want to knock coaches because there's definitely an impact that they can have on the game. But, dude, watch any baseball movie ever. You, you pretty much just roll the bats and balls out there and play. Like the the game is not that different from, you know, the age of five to 25. You just throw harder and hit it farther. And so, discipline and work ethic helped me a lot in baseball because people far outpaced me as far as talent, especially in pro ball. And so, the only way that I could even compete with them was to go the extra mile. As far as my preparation, like people ask me to go out in season, no shot. It's like, dude, I, I, I cannot do what you're doing. You're staying out till two, three, four in the morning, chasing girls who you don't even know their name. I can't do that. Just can't. You're better than me, and I, mm-hmm. I want to play in the show just as much as you. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it helped me a lot. I think that, like anything, it's just, it's just decisions. You know, it's not to say that the person going out till two, three, four in the morning, there are a lot of those guys in the bigs, yep. you know, sometimes you're just given a better hand, whether it's uh favor in the eyes of the organization. Like if you were signed for, like I said, 400,000 instead of 1000, that's, that's a large investment. You know, you're going to, you're going to have a longer leash in that regard, or if, shoot, man, if you're just more talented, like you can go out and have fun till 2, 3, 4 in the morning and still be better than me. That's, I mean, hey, touche. That, that, that's awesome. I just I couldn't do that. And yeah. so, yeah. That's,
0: that's so interesting. So so why did you end up playing baseball? I mean, were you just better as a baseball player than a football player?
1: Yeah, I mean, I could have gone to a handful of different uh, smaller D1 schools. I, w- I was offered a scholarship uh, from Duke. I could have gone to, you know, your Nevada Reno's, your San Diego state schools like that. Um, But I wanted to play in the PAC 12. I wanted, I guess it was the PAC 10 uh, my freshman year, which is going to be really great when my, my kids, uh, you play in the PAC 10. Yeah. Um, And so, but I wanted to play big boy, um, you know, PAC 10 PAC 12 sports. And if I went to any PAC 12 school, probably never would have saw the field i wouldn't have been a scholarship player i don't think and in baseball i just was so yeah um, yeah.
0: so uh which by the way shout out to willie shaw episode 39 he's uh he's the guy that you mentioned earlier that was looking for a roommate i just wanted to make sure we we got a plug in there because he just released a new ep so go check it out
1: Yeah, Um, he's awesome
0: so back to the back to the, the discipline conversation. So outside of baseball, how do you implement that discipline now in your day to day life? Because obviously you don't have the regimen of like, I got practice, I got weights, I got, you know, school, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't have people checking in on me in the classroom. You know, you're working as a professional in the working world. You've also got a podcast. So feel free to talk about some of the discipline that's taken in that world. Um, but how do how do you transition that discipline into your day to day now?
1: Yeah. Um, it's so funny because I mean, Joe, we're friends and we've, you know, a, a similar, we walk in similar circles, right? Uh-huh. And that's a word that people throw around uh, when they're, when they're talking about me a lot is, is discipline. And do, do I think I'm gifted in that way? Maybe. But what is, what is discipline even, what does that even mean? You, you do what you say you're going to do or you make hard decisions. What, what does that even mean? And when I look at, some of the decisions that i make that people are like oh man i just i I don't think i could do that i don't think there's anything different in me per se as far as a willpower or anything like that i think i really think that discipline is not necessarily the root of those things i think discipline is a byproduct of just really understanding what you want. Mm. And so if you have this understanding of something that you want, and it might not be, I can get this tomorrow. What happens if the thing you want is a year away or five years away? If you have an ability to project your mind and project or even delay your gratification to that thing and be willing to endure long suffering in order to get that that's all discipline is so it's not this oh man i'm just i'm really good at you know i set my alarm super early and then when it goes off i get up like that 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 that, those are like schematics that's that's not really discipline that's just actions i think that i don't know maybe i just have this ability to be be willing to suffer be willing to delay gratification. And maybe that's what ends up looking like discipline where, you know, I'm, I'm willing to set aside the here and now for the future, for future things. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but you, Oh, you asked about discipline in my day to day. Yeah.
0: Um, well, and let me me just chime in real quick on, on what I have heard. Um, just in different circles, when it comes to discipline, and I want to—I want to see your—I th- want to hear your thoughts on it. I heard John Wright, senior, who's a motivational speaker who works a lot with the NFL. Um, he said he hates it when people ask him, "I need help with my discipline." He says you don't need help with your discipline. You need help with your habits. You're incredibly disciplined to your bad habits. Okay. Yeah. You need to—you need to change your habits, and that changes your discipline.
1: Mm-hmm. No I don't know.
0: Yeah, I I figured you'd agree with that. I I just think that's such a good way of articulating. And I I think that's basically what you were describing. It's like, hey, I've got this goal in mind. I need to do certain things over and over and over again to get to that point.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like the way you put it, where things do become habitual. The hardest thing to do when it comes to, if we're talking in the world of discipline, habits, all that is to make the change initially. Because Mm -hmm. we don't like, we're creatures of habit. We don't like change. And we like comfort. And so it's very easy to be lazy, <laughs> even if that means it's easy to be comfortable and not willing to make a change. And so, yeah, it's just the hardest thing. Like, like for example, I remember, um, I remember in college, I didn't drink a ton, and it didn't have a lot to do with uh, my faith. It didn't have a lot to do with social anxiety or anything like that. I just knew I'm not going to drink alcohol a ton for the same reason. I'm not going to drink soda a ton. Uh. It's not good for you, you know, and I want to be the best pitcher I can possibly be. And frankly, when I've had alcohol, I'm no more fun. I don't have more fun. I'm not more courageous or spontaneous. I just kind of stay the same. So I don't really buy into the liquid courage thing. I don't, I don't need this. So I'm not gonna do something that isn't good for me that doesn't really bring me any you know, any reward. And I remember telling people, especially seniors, right? Team captains, when they hand me a beer, the first time to say no was always the hardest. Yep. First time. And then by the time my junior year, my senior year rolls around where I'm one of the leaders, when people found out that, and again, I'm I'm of legal drinking age at this point, and then people offer me a beer or whatever it looked like, and I said no. I can't tell you how many times somebody said, "Man, I wish I could do that." It's like huh. what what are you what are you talking about? This is America. You can do whatever you, you can do whatever you want. You know you you do not need this to be cool, confident, good looking like. No, literally nothing changes the fact that you you just said to me you don't want this and yet you're choosing to do it because of social pressure or w- whatever but like I said bringing it back to discipline and habits the hardest time to do that is when the big bad senior team captain hands you a beer how do you say no to that guy yeah. right Yeah. that is the hardest time and that's just a a microcosm for life. I think the hardest time, it's like the first mile, right? The first lap when you're running. And so if you have some habit that you want to change, whether it's setting your alarm clock an hour earlier or, you know, reading a book a month, whatever that looks like, I guarantee you the hardest one is going to be the first one. Yeah. It's... Without, without question. And so creating habits is, Purely just, you can become disciplined, quote unquote disciplined in literally one second. You say, all right, I'm making this decision. I'm gonna read a book this month for like for the first time since school. I'm gonna read a book. Why? Because I want to. Well, but it's gonna be hard. How are you gonna find the, the 20 minutes a day to get that done? Well, no, I, I already made the decision, so it's done. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to go through the difficult part because I just, I made a decision. And so I'm going to stick to it. And so once you do that enough where you make a decision, you go through the difficulty of it and you come out on the other side, like, man, okay, that was, that was great. I can, I can do that again. I can do that again in a different way. So I think maybe Joe, that's, that's how discipline looks in, in, in my life is just being willing. All right decision time. Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Well then let's
0: do it. Let's go. Yeah. yeah I love that. I love the, the intentional decision-making. And, and I think a lot of people get paralysis by analysis just in the decision-making alone. So they never even get to that point. Totally. Uh, and that's, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, but speaking of podcasts, so you got a podcast. So how, how on earth, how did you get conned into this Ponzi scheme of podcasting like I did. So, <laughs> yeah. so and, and I'm curious. I'm really, really curious about this. I've talked about this on the podcast before. To me, it was, and I would say I'm, I'm a relatively confident person. There's very few things that shake me up very, very rarely. But putting out that first episode was nerve wracking for me. Mm-hmm. So, so t- t- tell, sure. the folks, tell the folks how you ended up in that world.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. It's like, Hey, here's my baby. Do you think he's cute? Exactly. I hope he is. My wife keeps saying, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So I started a podcast. Uh, it was right around the first of the year, actually January 6th was the first episode. I'm just doing it in a season. So I'm going to do 12 episodes and then put it on pause and just see where it goes from there. But it's called lifting the veil and it's a podcast on dating sex and marriage for our generation. And I got started on it just because I feel like that is a sector of American society that we do, we just do not have figured out. If you're talking about marriage, you know, with with divorce rates as high as they are, obviously we could get into that, but everybody knows. You see it, you see it everywhere. And then dating and sex, we live in this hyper-sexualized culture, and yet I read this amazing book by. Her name is Dr. Jean Twenge. She is a professor of psychology at San Diego State. And she just gave the full rundown on studies that they've done um, as far as psychology in teens. And uh, it was a it was a study on this, we'll call it Gen Z, but the name of her book is iGen, lowercase i capital G in Gen, like iPhone. Yep. As in the iPhone generation. So she's renaming. This Gen Z, which was 1995 and after, so late, late millennials, and then those who are, you know, thereafter, and just basically saying that the iPhone is is really messing us up, yep, big, big time. And so uh, I don't want that, to—that's a whole nother deal. But we live in this hypersexualized culture, and yet the numbers say we're having less sex than ever, way less sex than our parents. It's not even close. So on average, somebody that's born in the 1990s, I was born in 92, will die having had six and a half sexual partners. Okay. Anybody that was born in the 1960s, on average, will die having 11 and a half sexual partners. Yeah. So our parents, and there's actually twice as many adult virgins in the 90s as there were in the 60s. So our parents are literally we're literally twice as likely to have sex than we are. And they didn't even have Tinder. Yeah. They have to hit on people at a bar. Yeah. So like we have apps where in theory you could have somebody in your bed tonight and yet we're not having, we're not having sex. And so you asked about the podcast. Um, it was something that I felt like God had put on my heart for quite some time. And uh, j- just like being aware of we are so off. We are so off in what, what dating is supposed to be, what sex was meant for, marriage, all those things. And I think about uh, the seven habits of highly effective people. Steve by Steve Gubby. And Gubby, right. One of those habits is to begin with the end in mind. I've quoted that a million
0: times on this podcast. I love it. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, the the habit still stands. There's a reason why he sold 30 million copies or whatever it is. But the end in this conversation, let's call it marriage. So if you begin with the end in mind, I think a lot of marriages fail just because you show up to marriage, not knowing what it is. And so as a guy, you expect to receive this, that, and the other in marriage. Some people think it's the finish line. Some people think that, oh, man, if I could just have my wife then everything's going to be great or, oh, awesome. If I could just have her, then, you know, we're going to be having sex 24-7. I don't have to worry about, you know, finding some girl at a bar and lusting over her, the whole dating game, whatever. And then you show up in marriage it, and it's nothing like that at all. It's a ton of sacrifice and it's actually difficult. And so I think about that beginning with the end in mind that is the premise of my podcast. Again, it's called lifting the veil. And that's this double entendre on, of course, on your wedding day, old fashioned, right? The bride has his veil, you lift it and then, you know, kiss your bride, but also lifting the veil as in just dispelling the lies that so many of us believe about dating sex and marriage. And it's been great for me great for me because it's i have the easiest job in the world i'm this curious guy who's not the authority who's yep. not the expert yep. and just says hey experts what do you guys think about this and so i'm talking to pastors talking to authors talking to some peers as well and just having a conversation around those things and yeah i mean there's there've been some amazing things that have come from it Uh, Joe, your podcast, you have just a male, uh, listener base, right?
0: You know, originally I, I thought that's how it was going to happen, but it's, it's pretty 50, 50 from at least from the feedback I get. Really? Yeah. It's, it's really surprising. I'm still trying to figure out why that is, but there's a lot of females that listen. And I would say out of the people that reach out to me, it's probably 60% female. Interesting. Okay really it's it's weird
1: well i'm just i'm I'm running through in my mind the guests that i've had on the show just to try to get an idea of what would be what would be worth listening to for the folks that are tuning in for you and of course you know i believe that every episode has its own you know nuggets in there but the first episode i did was with a coach of mine todd durkin todd lives in san diego he runs a business he's, he's just your typical man's man he's been on TV shows as a personal trainer. He's been Drew Brees' personal trainer for 20 years. Uh, Ladanian Tomlinson, like just a ton of NFL pro bowlers. And he's, so he's just this amazing man. But there's nothing soft about him. And yet I sat down with him talking about marriage.
0: Mm.
1: You know, and I think there's this misconception about marriage for men. that Because uh, we, we, we don't talk about it really ever with guys it's not surface level for us whereas with women you know 24 365 right it is it is surface level for them and so i have this conversation with todd and it's just amazing amazing to hear what this manly man had to say about marriage and you realize it's not like being a man is not what society tells us it is it's not about money it's not about fame it's not about how you look it's about loving people that are close to you loving others um you know laying your life down for others and so i think about that episode would be worth tuning into even as a guy i've interviewed a handful of gals on the show i think about my friend jennifer matthews she uh she comes from what's called the first family of football she's had eight family members playing the nfl so her oh, yeah. brother her brother is clay matthews who will be a hall of famer played forever for the green bay packers now he's with the rams her dad is clay matthews junior Her grandpa is clay matthews uh the first the original right who played for the played for the san francisco 49ers in 1950 before getting drafted and going to korea but she's had eight uh you know eight family mem- members in the nfl and you know she's she's just this amazing woman she's accomplished so much and she's 35 and single. Yeah. And so I wanted to have that conversation with her just cause you know, I'm, I'm not a girl. I, I don't know what that looks like on their side. Um, their, their frustrations, their concerns, all those things. And she shared a couple of things with me. And again, this podcast is not a, Hey, here's how you find a date
0: or, yeah, you know, yeah.
1: find a wife in 30 days. No. Not at all. It is about we believe a lot of things about dating, sex and marriage that are completely wrong, that are leading to your marriages breaking up and also your suffering and angst in singleness Mm -hmm. and it. And so I had this conversation with Jennifer and as a guy, it's like, dude, you're just you're just getting the scouting report, not even on on her, just on women like the, the female mind. And she said, yeah, you'd be shocked how little I get approached. It's like, well, how how can you explain that? And I really think, and she goes into this, there's just a lack of courage in men today. And I think there's a handful of reasons why. First of all, like pertaining to going up to a gal, making an approach, being kind, asking her out, she might reject you, she might not, but like taking the leap, right? That just doesn't Shoot happen. your shot, man. Shoot your shot. That doesn't happen anymore. And, you know, she verified it. A bunch of my uh, female friends here in town, they've said the same thing. And I think there's a number of reasons. But first of all, men just don't have to, you know? If, if you're concerned about, oh, I just, I just want a physical interaction, well, there, there's apps for that. You know, not that those are, I'm not condoning that at all. What I'm saying is if a man doesn't have to be courageous because being courageous is difficult. Oh, cool. You're giving me the easy way out. You mean I can just download an app and you'll be here in 20. Cool. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have to walk across the room and ask her out and risk being rejected I can just download an app. That, that's awesome. And so, um, yeah, man. It, it, I know I've gotten a little long winded as far no, as this podcast, is awesome. Keep that, going. that is, that was the premise of the podcast and I am more so just the inquisitive person who's guiding the conversation for the audience. In no way am I looking to provide insight really all that commentary on what he or she said after the episode, but, uh, I'm far from an expert. So in a way it takes a lot of, a lot of the onus off of me. And I just interview folks who do know what they're talking about that are doing marriage. Well, that are doing singleness. Well, whatever that looks like. And so I've gotten a really good response from it. It's been really, really cool. But yeah, you talk about the first episode when you know it's coming out the next morning, it's like, Ooh, okay. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're burning, we're burning the ships. I guess we're going live. We'll see what happens. And but it's been a really good thing.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I'm mirroring a lot of the things that you're saying, you know, being an inquisitive person just sitting there and asking questions. It's it's almost like a cheat code in life in my opinion. I get to talk to people and talk to them about stuff that um you know, maybe they wouldn't be open to talk about if it wasn't recorded and and put out into the world. Yeah. It's it's really really cool. Um Man, this is this has been awesome. And and obviously I'm going to put the podcast in the show notes and all that good stuff. Unfortunately, we are coming up on time. So um I do want to end the podcast the way I always end it. And that's if Bob Wheatley, if you could go back to 18-year-old Bob Wheatley, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know, stepping onto USC's campus and knowing all that you know today and knowing all that you know about yourself what is one piece of advice you would give yourself if you could go back to 18 year old you?
1: Ooh. How long of a walk would you allow me to take myself on? <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, man. Could, could I have four hours please? <laughs> um, yeah, man. Cause there's so many ways that you can go about that. But if I were to just share one thing, I think I'd probably tell myself, and this is going to be pretty broad. It'll apply to a lot of things, but I would just say, hey, the thing that you're looking for, you're not going to find it where you're looking. Mm,
0: okay.
1: And what I mean by that is if I was 18, 20, 22, I wanted to, I wanted to make it to the big leagues, not for the fame, not for the money. I wanted to have that moment for two things. First of all, I wanted to call my dad and tell him that he had to book a flight to go somewhere. Cause I was going to be in the show. I needed to be in Detroit tomorrow, whatever that looked like. So there was that, but also, and, and, and more so than anything, I wanted that moment where I could just look myself in the mirror with no fanfare, nothing. And just say, dude, you did it. Mm you're awesome. And I guess what I'm saying is I wanted to, I wanted to be validated. I wanted to be fulfilled. I wanted to chase something that was bigger than me. And so, yeah, I would say the thing that you're looking for, you're not going to find it where you're looking. Uh And so I would say that as it sits right now, and you know, I hope I have, plenty more of, of life to live. But I would just say that I I have I have found that thing. And since moving to Nashville, my faith has just exploded. And a lot of it has been from the people that I'm around. A lot of it has been from circumstances. But I mean I've I've talked to people that have played in the bigs, friends. I think about a story like a, a Trot Nixon who won the World Series. And after the champagne shower and all that stuff, he's back in his, his hotel room or his home, whatever it was. And he had this moment where he's like, Is that it? Is that it? Oh, yeah. And so, what happens when you reach the peak of your profession or your biggest dream, your biggest mountain, and realize it's not that great? And so, what I have realized. Is that I just I have this desire to to chase God, and there have been some some amazing experiences in my two years here in Nashville, two and a half years. Um, like when when you have moments where you feel like God whispers to you, where then all of a sudden He's not just this. This book that you have on your nightstand called the Bible, or this nameless, faceless spirit that your pastor talks about, when he actually becomes real, it'll freak you out. I mean, it the implications of that when the God that I mean, I've been i I've been a Christian for a long time, or at least on paper, but when it becomes real, there's nothing like it. Mm. There is nothing like it not 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 even close and so that's what i would say to myself what you're looking for you're not going to find it where you're looking because at the end of the day if we play this game and we allow ourselves to wonder or allow ourselves to believe if god exists and if God wants to know us, which is what the Bible says, then wouldn't it make sense that we have this desire to know him if that is the case. And it's been my experience as I have chased and really explored and turned over every rock within that. If it's becoming more and more real and more and more crazy because the implications of that, if God is real, all of a sudden he loves me. And he wants to walk with me. What a life. Yeah. What a life. I mean, who cares about pitching at Dodger Stadium? I have the creator of the universe that knows my name.
0: That's it gives gives you another level of peace in your
1: life. Peace, adventure, love, everything. Like literally everything, all things good times a million. Because I mean, he he is he's bigger than Dodger Stadium. He he is literally endless. You know, it's just, it's just amazing. So, man, you'd have, you'd have to have me on on another show. Yeah, I was about to say that's a whole sure. other podcast. Yeah, seriously, and I will I will take that call in a heartbeat. But that is what I would say to myself because at eighteen I was searching, twenty two searching, twenty five searching, and now. I'd say I'm still searching, but for the first time in my life, I'm also finding <laughs> Yeah, along the way, which is just amazing.
0: Mm. Well, Bob, I love it. That's that was uh, that was definitely a heartfelt one thing. Um obviously the podcast lifting the veil. I'll put your LinkedIn and and uh the link to the podcast and all that good stuff in the show notes. Uh, thanks for coming on. This
1: was awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You guys are, uh, you're doing a great thing. I know I've listened to a handful of your, your shows. Uh, you're a great host and thank you again for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Likewise. Likewise. Again, uh, for, for folks listening,
0: info at mmcip.co is where you can get a hold of us. If you, uh, got compliments, criticism keyword constructive criticism don't just complain offer a solution uh you can go to millennial-manhood.com to go to the website blogs up gonna put some fun articles up there here soon Uh, obviously the podcast is up there uh, and outside of that we'll talk to you guys soon